0: Well, hear now the word of the Lord from 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts, who is enthroned on the cherubim, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phineas, were there with the ark of the covenant of God. As soon as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, "What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean?" And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp, the Philistines were afraid, for they said, A god has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has ever happened before. Woe to us, for who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you, be men, fight. So the Philistines fought and Israel was defeated and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter for 30,000 foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas died. This is the word of our Lord. Uh, One of the things that we all have a propensity for, and is really universal to all people, in all cultures, in all times, uh, is the manipulation, or perhaps a little bit more aptly, the pressuring of people and circumstances unto our own ends. This should come as no surprise for us, because from our earliest days, one of the first things we learn how to do is how to leverage circumstances and people, in order to obtain the outcome that our hearts ultimately desire. Uh, for example, one of my earliest childhood memories is at the ripe old age of seven, uh, I brokered a deal with my parents where I would mow the lawn for a whole summer in exchange for what was perhaps a 5 or $10 watch. Uh, now, to my seven-year-old self, that seemed like an easy deal to make, a highly beneficial give and take, if you will. Uh, But in retrospect, I'm rather more amazed at the wisdom and shrewdness, if you will, of my parents and their ability to come out ahead on this deal. And even to this day, I am amazed at how quickly young children pick up this art of a deal, if you will, in proposing and giving something that they know that you want in order to accomplish their own purposes. Be that delaying bedtime, delaying a bath, or not omitting a bath altogether, or perhaps even just one more cookie. Uh, But this is something that people universally become skilled at throughout the course of their lives, and it permeates every action that we make within the bounds of a family, and even within the bounds of society. And although this skill set is often permeated and marred by sin on our part, in our own attempts to manipulate and bend others to our own desires, even unto their own Tearing down or detriment, uh, we may also reasonably argue that the existence of civilization itself rests upon this ability to value and to exchange goods, to make a deal. Indeed, we should duly recognize that this is the good means by which God has graciously condescended to his people in the form of a covenant. God calls his people unto himself and redeems them by his atoning work while giving his people the law as a framework of obedience for living within the covenant. The people of Israel agreed to the covenant stipulations with Moses by the words, quote, All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And that's this chapter 19, verse 8. Yet our passage before us here this evening presents an example of how God's people sinfully attempt to manipulate the covenant's law and framework unto their own ends. They do this in order to obtain what they want of God without knowing and delighting in him as the covenant requires. What the people of Israel quickly find is that God is not a mere man, that his will could be bent unto our own. God is not a weak and gullible deity that can be backed into a corner and utilized for our own ends. Rather, our passage presents an implicit example demonstrating that God is a different kind of being altogether. He is the creator. We are the creature. He is faithful and upright. He is good and we are not. Consequently, he is like no other God, and he is thus to be heard, feared, and trusted. And this is our big idea this evening. Hear God, fear God, and entrust yourself. God. We will see this big idea play out in three primary points from our passage today. First, hear the word of the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. Second, repent and fear before the Lord. Repent in fear before the Lord. And finally, or thirdly, to trust the promises. Let's then return to our text and examine our first point, to hear the word of the Lord in verses 1 through 2. We read, And the word of Samuel came to all of Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Ephek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated before the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. The first thing that we should notice in our passage is that the word of Samuel has come to all of God's people, to all of Israel. So whereas the third chapter of this book of Samuel, if you look back at chapter 3, verse 1, begins with this solemn declaration that the word of the Lord was rare in those days. The end of chapter 3 marks a very pivotal point in Israel's history. Now, as we come to our passage this evening, Samuel has been established as the Lord's prophet. The Lord has revealed himself and his word to Samuel, as we read in verses 20 through 23 of chapter 3 of 1 Samuel. And the vision of the Lord and his word has now come through all of Israel, through the prophet Samuel, as we read here, verse 1. We further read in the rest of the verse, verse 1 that is, that Israel went out to battle against their ever-present enemy, the Philistines. These people appear rather suddenly and without clear origins in the ancient world, although there are several extra-biblical sources that attest uh, to the presence of the Philistines at this time. Uh, But the Philistines themselves, they serve as an ever-present thorn in the side of Israel, from the times of the judges through the early monarchy of Israel, through the times of David and Solomon. Now Ebenezer, uh, where Israel is, is camped, literally means stone of help, and it was likely just a couple miles, maybe two miles east of Ephek. And this village or settlement stood between the Philistines and the tabernacle of the Lord, which was at Shiloh, where the people of Israel worshipped. This time in their history. However, what is most telling about this verse is what it does not explicitly say. That is that although God's prophet Samuel is in fact established within Israel, we are given no indication here that the people of the Lord inquired of him before going into battle. So as we place this long-standing debate about whether the Philistines were the aggressor in this war or not, as we put that aside, uh, the scriptures do consistently present a positive precedence of God's people inquiring of him prior to going into battle. Uh, even from the start of the conquest of the land against an aggressive King Shahan, Moses and the people did not move against him until the Lord said that he had delivered them into his hand. We see this in Deuteronomy chapter 2 verses 30 through 34. And a similar pattern can be seen with King Og, where the Lord tells Moses to go up against him in Deuteronomy chapter 3. And likewise, Moses did not take vengeance upon the Midianites until the Lord explicitly told him to do so. Throughout the conquest of the land by Joshua and through judges, even judges such as Gideon, the people of the Lord did not move in the battle unless they first inquired or asked of the Lord. Or the Lord explicitly instructed them to do so, and even Saul received instruction from the Lord to go out to battle and destroy the Amalekites, though he did not fully obey, as we read in 1 Samuel fifteen. And David, King David, continued to inquire of the Lord even when battling this very people, the Philistines, in Second, excuse me, Second Samuel chapter five. And all of this is to say already that in the first few phrases of our passage this evening, they imply what will be made explicit in the following verses. Namely, that Israel is not interested in consulting the Lord for his instruction and blessing in these matters. They have no concern to hear the word of the Lord. Rather than seeking him, Israel is only interested in protecting what is right in front of them, in their own borders. But as we see in our passage, as the battle progresses, Israel is defeated with the deaths of approximately 4,000 men. But importantly for us, we need to be asking, how do we heed the word of the Lord? Granted, we do not prophetically receive the word of the Lord as Samuel did, outside of what has already been handed down to us in the sacred scriptures. But do we wrestle with discerning what is pleasing to the Lord, as the Apostle Paul puts it in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 10? Are we concerned with what the will of the Lord is in our own lives, and seeking to live in obedience to him rather than unto ourselves? To do so, we need to know what his word says. We need to hear his word, to hide it in our hearts. Only then can our thoughts be illuminated and our minds transformed by the Spirit working through the Word. We need to hear the Word of the Lord. Having then understood the necessity of giving due consideration to God's Word and His revealed will to us, let us then consider how we ought to repent and fear the Lord. the second point of our sermon this evening, in verses 3-9. through Uh, Immediately upon revisiting verse 3, we read that the elders of the people came into the camp, and they're baffled by Israel's defeat. Yet, importantly, they recognize that it is really the Lord who defeated them in battle, and that the Philistines were merely an instrument by which the Lord has accomplished his will. They asked, why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They recognize that Yahweh is sovereign over all things and that even the defeat of his covenant people is not beyond his providential ordination of whatsoever comes to pass in accordance to his good purposes and will. But in light of this fact that they recognize God's sovereignty and even admit that it was not his will for Israel to win the battle, the elders' solution to this problem is all the more astonishing. They say, Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. Now, there's always been a long standing fascination with the Ark of the Covenant, even extending into modern evangelical circles in our greater popular culture. And somewhat strangely, the sentiments expressed here in this passage by the elders of Israel. Uh, which view the ark as a sort of talisman or a token of guaranteed victory. These views are even shared by our popular culture as a whole. Uh, For example, Indiana Jones right-hand man Marcus Brody in the popular movie Raiders of the Lost Ark says, an army which carries the ark before it is invincible. And this is the same idea that's actually expressed by the elders of Israel here in this passage. And at first glance, however, this is not a completely unreasonable assumption, because in Numbers chapter 10, verse 35, uh, where, whenever the ark went out before the people of Israel, Moses would say, quote, arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and those who hate you lay before you. However, a critical mistake is being made in our passage in that the elders have assumed that their enemies and the enemies of the Lord are de facto, or always one and the same. And ironically enough, the words of Moses here are going to be fulfilled throughout what we call the Ark narrative here in this passage through the end of chapter 7. These words will be fulfilled as both Israel and the Philistines are scattered and flee toward the Ark. Furthermore, the sentiment, uh, which is expressed by the elders of Israel, represents a crass failure uh, to remember what the ark actually signifies or represents. Uh, When the Lord gives instruction on how the ark is to be constructed in Exodus chapter 25 verse 22, he says, quote, There I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you, about all that I will give you in the commandment for the people of Israel. So at a fundamental level, uh, the Ark of the Covenant represents God's presence among his people. He promises to meet with his people at the Ark of the Covenant and to speak with them. And remember that the foundational promise of the covenant, uh, indeed the covenant of grace as a whole, is that the Lord will be God unto his people that we are his people and he is our God. But instead of bringing the ark in order to meet with and inquire of God, the elders call for it in order to manipulate God and guarantee their own personal victory. The elders remember that God is sovereign on the one hand, but then they forget who he is on the other, that he is indeed a God who is presence with his people and desires to speak with his people, which is what the ark actually represents and should remind the people of. And rather than inclining their hearts towards God, they are attempting to manipulate him, to back him into a corner, if you will, and force him to act in a way so as to produce the victory, the outcome that the people themselves desire. Uh, The author of our text here in this passage itself highlights this gross irrelevance of God's people for the ark in verse four, by pointing out that they are dealing with the ark of the holy covenant, with a God who is faithful to that covenant and is the Lord of all the heavenly hosts and who is enthroned on the cherubim of the ark. Yet this ark represents uh, the presence of a holy, righteous, perfect, and sovereign God among his people, and it is carried by none other than the wicked and reprobate sons of Eli, Ophini and Phinehas. Not only does Israel seek to use God rather than to submit to him, but they odiously and irreverently parade him around before their enemies without any due consideration for their need to have their own sin atoned for, and repent in obedience before this holy God. They do not fear God, and thus they do not turn to him in repentance. They want to bring God's power to bear without hearing his word. These sentiments are further confirmed as we continue in verse 5, as the earth resounds and shakes with the violent shout of the Israelite army as the Ark of the Covenant comes into the camp but yet there is still none who does good, who does the right thing, and seeks after God. They want what God provides, but they do not want God. They desire the blessings which God promises in his covenant without wanting the object of that covenant, namely reconciliation and delight in the Lord God himself. How common is this idea among our churches today? How often do people desire heaven without Christ or blessings without God? How do you seek to manipulate God? Do you find yourself thinking that if only I read my Bible enough, if only I tithed enough, went to church often enough, then I will receive the blessings and even the riches and the comfort that I desire from the Lord? Uh, concerning this very sentiment in our passage this evening, commentator Richard D. Phillips writes, quote, the point is that if we are to seek God's mighty help in battle, we should seriously seek to honor God by heeding the rebukes, corrections, and instructions found in the Bible in his word, End quote. And as we look at our passage before us this evening, we cannot help but notice the thick irony of the people utilizing the ark to their own ends while failing to recognize the very thing that the ark represents. Do not be guilty of the same mistake of utilizing the church, prayer, and even your own Bible reading unto your own ends without recognizing that they are the means by which God changes you. They are the means by which God is working his own purpose and grace in your own life. Remember that these are the means pointing us to Christ in his gospel of grace, rather than works or tasks to be checked off a list in order to manipulate or get something from God. Repent in fear before the Lord and delight in him as the supreme desire and affection of your heart. As we return to our text, we see that the Philistines represent a somewhat different response to the presence of the Ark of God. We read in verses six and seven, that when they hear the shout of the army of Israel, when the Ark comes into the camp, they are afraid. This compounds even the sad and sinful state of Israel's attempts to manipulate God, uh, as the Philistines themselves are struck with the very fear that should have fallen upon Israel as the Ark entered the camp. The Philistine camp is undone, and in an unintentional and ironic twist, these Gentiles, give, at least indirectly, glory to the God of Israel that they themselves should have given him. They recognize that no one can deliver them out of the mighty hand of Israel's God. Verse 7, God's covenant people fail to remember who God is, but the enemies of God and his people remember what he has done. They give glory to him. Israel gives lip service to God's sovereignty, but immediately forgets what that actually means. But the Philistines tremble in fear before this mighty God, and they betray their own polytheism, their own paganism. But yet, even in this, the Philistines camp, uh, the camp of the Philistines, their response also demonstrates a lack of a reverent fear before God. While Israel's lack of fear before the Lord means that they do not repent and turn to the Lord, the fear of the Philistines causes them to turn inwardly. They dig deeply, if you will, within themselves for fear of becoming the slaves of the people of Israel. They fear becoming slaves more than they fear Israel's God. In verse 9, we read, Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews, as they have been to you. Be men, fight. This misguided fear is something that is somewhat prevalent even to all of us. And it becomes especially apparent as we teach and instruct our children concerning their own safety. Uh, Alyssa and I have observed, for example, that when we teach our children that they are not to play in or even cross the streets without an adult, they they initially learn to do so not because they fear uh, the uh, ultimate consequence that their lives are in danger, but rather they fear what is an immediate consequence which they perceive will greatly impact their lives, like having to go in and sit down and time out, or um, come to sit with mom or dad for a moment. Uh, But what our children, and by extension, all of us ultimately fail to appreciate is what they should truly fear. In this case, the danger that the streets and the fast moving cars pose to their very lives. They lack a reverent, healthy fear of that situation. And in our passage this evening, Israel and the Philistines demonstrate two improper responses to the presence of God upon them. Israel, on the one hand, ignores God and seeks to use him to accomplish their own purposes, like a puppet, but the Philistines fear him but want nothing to do with him, and they rather opt for a find-themselves approach, if you will. They fear slavery to the Hebrews rather than the God of the Hebrews. But both of these responses are so very common within Christian circles today. Some go to church because their conscience and the creation around them bear witness to Almighty God, but they use spirituality and religion as a means of finding and making much of themselves. Others may use religion to manipulate God, and others in order to get what they want. But true and undefiled religion makes less of ourselves because it delights in making much of God. Such is the religion that properly turns to repentance before the Lord in a proper and reverent fear of him. Repent in the fear of the Lord. But ultimately, the Lord does in our passage soundly deliver the battle into the hands of the Philistines, not because of the Philistine response to the presence of the Lord, but rather in the discipline of his covenant people, all while fulfilling his own good will and purposes as he promised. And this leads us to the final point of our sermon this evening, namely to trust in the promises of the Lord. We read in verses 10 and 11, quote, So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for thirty thousand foot soldiers of Israel fell. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Things do not turn out the way that the elders of Israel thought they would, as should be readily apparent. Rather than guaranteeing victory with the Ark of the Covenant, Israel is soundly defeated at the hands of the Philistines, and 30,000 died. Given such a routing defeat, it is perfectly understandable that the people of Israel would think that all is lost, and the covenant is ruined, that God has completely abandoned his people. Indeed, this will be the very sentiment explored in the remainder of chapter 4, which will be covered with the next evening service. Yet in the simple statement of verse 11, we have an unassuming glimmer of hope. Uh, Hope in the sense that despite Israel's sinful attempts to manipulate God, that he is still working and ordering all things in accordance to his will, even in things such as the death of Eli's sons, Ophini and Phinehas, the wicked sons of Eli. And prior to this battle, even prior to the establishment of Samuel as a prophet of the Lord, we read in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel that the sons of Eli would not listen to the rebuke and the correction of their father precisely because it was the will of the Lord Other put them to death. The Lord takes so seriously the purity of his worship in accordance with his will that he condemned Hophini and Phinehas as reprobates. Furthermore, in the prophetic rejection of Eli's household as priests at the end of 1 Samuel chapter 2, the Lord gives a sign that the two sons of Eli would die on the same day. You see this in verse 34 of chapter 2. And moreover, as the Lord's plans are revealed with ever-increasing clarity, the Lord tells Samuel in 1 Samuel chapter 3 verses 11 through 14, that this prophetic rejection of Eli's household will occur with such a great calamity that all the ears of those in Israel will tingle. That all this prophetic rejection of Eli's house would be brought to completion, in fact, in a single day. And even more than that, and this is where the real glimmer of hope lies, the Lord promises to raise up for himself a faithful priest to do all that is according to God's heart and mind. We see this in chapter 2, verse 35. So we need to let this properly frame the context of our passage here this evening. Rather than viewing this battle, this unholy war, as God's forsaking and undoing of Israel and the dissolution of the covenant, all that happens in our passage is in perfect accordance with God's already revealed will throughout the book of 1 Samuel. Eli's sons die on the same day, and the prophetic rejection of Eli's household will be brought to completion on the same day, as we continue in verse 12 through the rest of this passage next time. But moreover, these prophecies are fulfilled by means of a tremendous calamity, as was foretold to Samuel, in the loss of the ark, representing God's presence for his people. But most importantly, all is not lost, because the Lord God Almighty, who ordains and providentially orders all that comes to pass, has promised to raise up for himself a priest who is faithful before him. And while this promise is most immediately fulfilled by other Levitical priests who minister throughout the monarchy of David and Solomon, we know that this promise is ultimately fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ are great and perfect, high priest. And this is ultimately why our big idea is to hear God, fear God, and entrust ourselves. Things very often do not turn out the way that we have planned them. Even when we try to bend and manipulate our circumstances to our own ends, things are often not as they seem. But in our passage this evening, we are given really a stunning example of how the Lord is still faithful to his covenant and working all things in accordance to his covenant promises, even in sin and great calamity and great evil that befalls the people of Israel. The first two points of this sermon emphasize the need to hear God and to fear God, but neither of these things are possible without entrusting ourselves to the one who is the word of God made flesh and has revealed the Father to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. In this sense, then, our passage before us this evening identifies our need for the gospel, and it points us toward how our sovereign God is providentially bringing about this gospel, redemptive history. In Christ, all the promises of God find their yes in him. Trust in the promises of God. And this is ultimately what we are called to do in this passage, to hear the word of the Lord, repent, and trust him. But as we seek to faithfully apply these precious truths to our own lives and step with the Spirit, we may rightly ask, how do that? While we readily recognize that there are at least, these are at least superficially simple things, if we are honest with ourselves, we often struggle in our own growth and sanctification. We recognize that we hear the word of the Lord through his inerrant word preserved through the millennia for his people. That word, which is above all earthly powers, which reveals our great God and Savior, and gives us his gospel. But how do you do in reading and meditating on God's word? Is your Bible reading simply something that is to be checked off your list? Or is it a means by which you can delight in God hear from him? Pray that the Lord would open your eyes to understand his word. And to rejoice and delight in his word by his spirit. That you may be convicted of your sin and comforted in the gospel. While increasing in the grace and knowledge of God. Only by knowing the word of the Lord can you know him as he has revealed himself. And only by understanding who he is can we fear him in a godly, in a reverent way. In a way that leads to repentance or a turning from our sin to God. Only in Christ, as he is revealed in the gospel, can you hear and understand God's word and true repentance for him. Do you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, that God's law is good, and that he has also atoned for all your sin, and given you his perfect and spotless righteousness? Do you believe that he is your faithful high priest, who has promised of old? In the Lord Jesus, all the promises of God are fulfilled, and our salvation And he has given us these means of grace in his word and through prayer, by which we may discern what is pleasing. Hear the Lord, fear the Lord, and entrust yourself to him by faith. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this inestimable, rich, rich treasure of your word. Help us to be doers of your word and not hearers only. who deceive ourselves, and by your Spirit, may you work mightily to help us apply your word to our lives, not only in these moments, but in all the days of our lives. May we, by your Spirit and through your word, discern what is pleasing to you, and entrust ourselves by faith unto the Lord Jesus for all of our days. In Christ's name we pray.